R&D, clinical trials, approval, Salesforce's marketing. They can all be useless if a drug isn't on formulary. How does a drug get on formulary? It doesn't happen by itself. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I'm joined today by John Haas, Senior Director of Market Access at Cineos Health. John runs the teams that secure that market access for products from Acne to Zika. Getting access next on the Cineos Health Podcast. John Haas, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. So I know what you do because I work with you, but can you just tell for those that don't know you, what do you do here at Cineos Health? Yes, of course. Here at Cineos Health, I manage payer-facing teams primarily. So I help companies develop their go-to-market strategy for market access. And those market access teams can have numerous different titles, if you will, and job descriptions, depending on the product and depending on the therapeutic category that we're looking at. So it would help, I think, people that don't know what a market access team is. What was life like if you have no market access team at all? What happens? You have a drug, you put it on the market. Then what happens or doesn't happen if you didn't have a market access team? And then maybe that'll help us understand why you need a market access team. Certainly. A long time ago, if you will, we didn't have to think about market access 30, 35 years ago, even 25 years ago. Market access strategy was a lot less important. We used to use the term managed care, which is a kind of a silly term today because there's no such thing as non-managed care. All care is managed by someone, whether it be a large national payer, a government payer, a hospital slash health system, somebody along those lines. Market access means that your product has been approved by an entity to use in a overall treatment protocol. And there is a lot that goes on behind the scenes, of course, and there's a lot that goes on as far as getting that access. What does that mean? Contracting and so forth. But essentially what it means is that the physician that you may want to target for your sales team is able to use the drug for a particular patient. That's kind of the definition of market access. If a physician writes the drug, can the patient actually fill it either through their local retail pharmacy or through mail order or some other fulfillment methodology? What does the team do? If I launch a drug and I just had no market access team, I suppose if I'm the payer, I'm a little annoyed because I maybe wanted to have a conversation and extract some money from manufacturers and have a contract to do so. But then what happens if you don't? I know that's kind of a hard question to answer, but it helps us, I think, to understand what the heck market access team is doing, why companies not just want them, but need them. Without market access, essentially, at the end of the day, there's no prescription, meaning that a physician may write, but if a patient goes to the pharmacy, the pharmacist will inform the patient that they do not have coverage for that particular drug. I can call your physician and I can get a substitute, which may be another competitive product or a generic product in the same category. The hard part of this is, is that The physician will typically write once, twice, maybe three times. And if all of those times the patient doesn't end up on the actual drug that the physician chose, they're going to stop writing and they're going to confront the sales rep when they come in next time and say, hey, I listened to your clinical story. I agreed with it. I tried to write the drug twice. Both patients were denied coverage. So I'm not going to write anymore. You let me know when you have coverage now. So it puts everybody in a hard predicament, if you will. Okay. So we need market access, meaning in this case, that an insurance company is going to put the product on formulary so that when the doctor writes it, that the prescription goes through at some level. Maybe there are hoops that have to be jumped through, but you at the end of the day, get the drug to the patient. What does the market access team do to make that happen? Why is a market access team somebody who's doing that? Why doesn't it just happen like automatically? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Payers are aware of drugs coming to market. There's no question. They follow, as a matter of fact, most, if not all payers have a pipeline analysis done on a regular basis, meaning that they know what's coming down the line. So they're somewhat aware, but the availability of the data and information on that drug is somewhat limited. Now with the FDA Marketing Act that was put together, gosh, back in the early 2000s, governing, if you will, or guiding pharma companies as to what they can talk to payers about, that was a big breakthrough. And recently in 2016, FDAMA 114 was, uh, clause 114 was actually updated to allow pharma companies to talk to payers prior to the launch of the drug. Massive breakthrough for our industry, being that you can start having those conversations with, I'll call them decision makers. They can be pharmacy directors, medical directors, or some hybrid. And it allows that pharma company to have a discussion with that pharmacy director, tell them whatever data they can share, whatever data has been performed during phase three. They can talk about the unmet need in the category. They could even talk about other products in the category, even though they may not have been clinically examined versus each other. So it allows you to prepare that pair to understand why and where that fits. Now, once the drug is launched, the biggest tool that the market access team uses is what we call a value prop deck or a value proposition deck, meaning that it will tell a story to the payer as far as the value of the drug. So why should a payer pay for this drug? Why should a payer put this drug on formulary? Is it better clinically? In other words, more efficacious? Is it safer? Is it a better dosing regimen? And at the end of the day, payers want to hear, how is this going to be better for me? And when they say that, they mean monetarily. So typically, market access teams also, at the time they present value proposition information, they also present what we call a budget impact model. What does that mean to the payer? So if you use this drug, it's going to cost you X, but it also, based on clinical trials, will save you money as far as hospitalizations, admitting, or ER visits, or potentially minimize the utilization of more expensive drugs down the line. There's a whole menu, if you will, of things that are valuable to a payer. When it really comes down to it, it's dollars and cents. Yeah, it's funny. The dollars and cents that matter also matters differently for different payers. And just some examples that have come up recently and work we've done. If you take a PBM, a pharmacy benefit manager, the Express Scripts of the world, some of the ones like Optum, et cetera, their concern is rebate dollars. And that's about it. So what the rebate dollars are, if you're taking a new product on formulary that may be displacing an old product, the question is, are my rebate dollars going to go up or go down? It's not the cost of the drug. It's not the amount that patients pay in coinsurance and copays. It is rebate dollars, rebate dollars, rebate dollars. And that's very different from how it's done XUS. And that's very different from how a normal, quote unquote, insurance company, one that's actually responsible for the costs, not just the rebate dollars, but the costs, how they react and what they react to. They may be as interested in how much the drug costs as they are in the rebate dollars. Oh, you're absolutely right, especially at the PBM level, because that's really all that they're controlling is the pharmacy benefit for that patient. They're not controlling the medical benefit side. So to a PBM, if you say, you know, utilization of this drug will reduce hospitalizations by X percent, 
that's of little to no value to the PBM because they're not paying for hospitalizations. The medical insurance payer is. And you're absolutely right. If you have a drug in a category that has a dominating market share, let's just say 50% or more, and that PBM is getting a rebate of X percent, if you come in and you offer your drug and you're offering a lower rebate, you're going to erode the market share of the drug that they're getting the higher rebate for. When they do the math, they'll see that at the end of the year, they're going to have less rebate income if they approve your drug to label, unless they put some type of either step edit or prior authorization in front of it to try to minimize the utilization. That's even true if the drug were free. A free drug may not be as valuable to a PBM as having a drug that costs thousands of dollars per month and has a rebate north of 35%. Sad but true. So far with the teams, if I'm just summing up, John, what you've said is that the teams exist because payers, yes, they're aware of drugs, but they want more information. The information that we can get comes in before the drug is even launched from the Food and Drug Modernization Act and the so-called FDAMA 114. If you want to hear more about that, you can listen to the 21st Century Cures Act podcast episode, which is a previous episode that explains how FDAMA 114 works and became enabled. So we can talk to payers beforehand about the drug earlier, and we can also talk to them, and this is what the team also does, is to convince them that they will save money or make more money depending on the type of payer with the drug than without. I know that you mentioned also that PBMs may not care about medical costs, but other payers do. It's not one size fits all, it sounds like. That's right. It has to be customized based on what their positioning is. So if they're positioning, again, like a PBM that's only concentrating on pharmacy benefit, if your only value proposition is that you're going to save the payer money on medical costs, the PBM may or may not be interested. I'm not saying they won't put you on formulary. They still may. But if there's a less expensive alternative that acts similarly from a safety and efficacy standpoint, and they're getting rebate dollars from them, they may put a step at it saying that you have to try that drug before you get to use yours. It can be devastating, quite frankly. One of the things I've always kind of wondered about when I've worked with these teams that go out and talk to payers and do negotiations with payers or inform payers is how much the personal connection matters. And it's something that I hear from the teams all the time. They're touting their personal connections. They're name dropping this person I know at CVS, this person I know at Express Scripts, this person that I know at you name the payer. I must say as a data-driven person, I've wondered if that was all BS and it just didn't matter if you knew them because they're really driven by money. And so it didn't matter what the personal touch is, but I only look at numbers so I could never know. What do you think? Great question. This market access evolution, if you will, has gone on for many years. And the people who are in these type of roles, I call them the acronym roles, NAMs, GAMs, CAMs, RAMs. Essentially, they're all account managers. National account managers, key account managers, those kind of things. Exactly. Government account managers, regional account managers. These are folks that have been trained and they're very good at negotiating. They're very good at presenting data, telling a story, even utilizing sales skills. The group is smaller, much smaller than if you look at field sales organizations and so forth. A typical pharma company, if they have 100 sales reps, they may only have two or three national and regional account managers to call on payers. And these folks have been around a long time and they will tell you that it's the relationship. And I have experienced with client partners that have said, we want someone that has an established relationship at ESI or United Health or Aetna. And quite honestly, 
that's great if they do. But in my opinion, I don't think they have to. If someone has the skill set to be an account manager, meaning they know how to present a story, they know how to present a budget impact model, they know how to address an unmet need in the therapy category, then it doesn't matter if you know them or not. I've never seen a situation where a payer turns down a meeting because they don't know the person that asked for it. It may be harder. They may ignore your email two or three times. They may ignore your phone call a couple of times. But when it comes down to it, it's really not a factor that is important. So what does make a good national account manager or one of these payer teams? Is it math? Is it negotiation skills? Is it being personable? It sounds like knowing the person maybe doesn't matter so much, at least these days. I'd say that would be the, if I was, which I do all the time, recruiting for national account managers, having established relationships are preferred, no question. But if they're not there, the skill set that they really need is, first of all, that they are good presenters. Let me go back to what I talked about earlier about the payer value proposition deck. It's a set of slides, anywhere from 18 to 25 slides. Anyone can present slides and read them. But a good national account manager will know how to actually tell the story behind the slides and tell the story to say, you have an unmet need. What's available today on the market doesn't meet what you need. What I have does meet the need. And here's why. And then they also need to be very skilled at negotiating because it will come down to negotiating a contract, meaning that there will be a potential rebate or a discount. The only time that doesn't come into play is if you are a single entity, the only treatment available for that therapy, then there is no need to contract because it's not like they would use a different drug versus yours. Yours is the only choice. I hear that and have heard that from payers, especially ones that are a little bit annoyed with name your very innovative company that didn't play ball with them because they didn't need to. And then later they do need to because they get into a different drug class. What is it that you do in those situations where you have no need to contract with any payer because you have a must add product? Then it comes down to negotiating the acceptance on formulary as what we call to label, meaning that it's the right patient with the right diagnosis that has gone through the right treatment algorithm, then they need to use the drug, period. There's no discount. Here's what the drug costs. Here's the whack. And that sometimes can become challenging because if it is a very expensive drug, and as most innovative drugs are today, first in category, then the payer is going to try their hardest to not approve the drug for a particular patient. And they're going to put a lot of criteria in front of the provider and the patient. They may not be other therapies in the same class, but they may be other therapies that treat the disease versus cure it or keep the disease at bay versus treat it. So there's different ways that they can influence. And that's the part of the negotiation on the account manager that they have to be able to vocalize and again, tell that economic story too, which is extremely important. Sounds like there's still something to do, even if you are an innovator where your product is a must add, there is something that the payers can do to make your life miserable and you still need a NAM team, this account management team. Certainly, that is exactly right. And it all comes down to, again, that that prior authorization process and criteria, which can be daunting. And it's daunting to the provider. It's daunting to the patient. It also requires the utilization of a patient services organization or what we call hub, field reimbursement to help pull those things through. They make it very difficult or they can make it very difficult through that prior authorization process. 
you know, there are some things that everyone thinks matters, and I'll just name one because I've seen it a lot, and that is an AMCP dossier, this dossier that's used for payers to describe the product. It turns out that for many products, it's not really necessary to have one of these things, and it's just an unnecessary cost. Makes their life a little bit easier, but so what? Sort of answer on them. Are there things that you see that everyone thinks might be necessary for a NAM team? turned out not to be necessary or the other way around, something that nobody really thinks is really important and turns out to be extraordinarily important for dealing with payers with NAM teams. Absolutely. And you're 100% correct. The dossier, which is a must-have for every product, according to the payers, but is it really? It's essentially just a description of the product and the clinical trials and everything that's there. It's not necessary. The other thing that is sometimes not necessary is contracting, like we talked about. Again, if you're first in class, Do you really need to negotiate a contract or a rebate? Budget impact model can or cannot be important. It's very easy if you're the only product in the category and you're first in class to treat that disease. Does it really matter? It becomes a very simple budget impact model. In other words, this affects 10% of the population with this underlying disease or whatever it may be. So it's just a quick paper and pencil. You have 6 million members, this is probably going to affect 600,000 of them. Everyone thinks the budget impact model is a must-have. Not always. I think the only thing that really is a must-have is that value story. Why? Why do I need to cover this drug? Tell me why. And sometimes it could be a matter of two or three slides. Sometimes it could be 25, depending on the category. So John, I'm going to ask you a last question. And if it's too personal a last question, shall we say, then you don't have to answer it, of course. What big, bad mistakes do you see ones doing? We have the benefit of working with a lot of different companies, seeing a lot of different products brought to a lot of different payers. What do we see having had that perspective of seeing people doing it wrong? How do people do it wrong? Another great question. I've seen many aspects of how we do market access wrong. The first one being they don't put the NAM, the account management team, if you will, in the field with enough time prior to launch. It takes a good nine months to a year prior to Fidamidate in order to get to all the payers, talk to them, explain where this drug is going to fit in their protocols. And even though you don't have pricing information, then you still have enough information that you can prepare the market for your launch. So once launch comes, it's a lot easier for the payers if they already know, you've already met with them, they already know what the aspects of the drug are, they understand where it fits, and that getting it on formulary negotiation can be very short. That's the first mistake, and I see that an awful lot, and it ends up coming down to economics. Well, we can't afford to put five or six people in the field right now. We're still a year from launch. The other piece is the number. If you only put one or two people out to call on national and regional payers and government payers, it's a matter of time. One person can only do so much. And if you want access immediately, then the more people, the better, because you need to gain that access quickly. The biggest mistake companies make is they put sales teams out there on day of launch when the access hasn't been established yet because you only hired the account team two or three months earlier and they haven't established any formulary successes yet. Now you send a sales rep into a doctor's office and say, hey, my drug is the best. Great. Let me write it. And then (laughs) the patient doesn't get it. And then it all goes downhill from there. 
those are the two big, big things. As well as lastly, I'd say that not enough impact on that marketing budget to create that value proposition deck. Because that value proposition, you know, many pharma companies, they're very proud in that the drug is going to offer a great advance for patients, a great advance for providers, but to a payer, it doesn't offer a value. That's the biggest issue that I see out there. They can't tie those things together. So when you sit in front of a payer and the payer says, eh, you know, yeah, but but Mr. Payer, Mrs. Payer, this drug is QDs once a day. The competitors twice a day. Okay, that's great for patients, great for providers, but why should I pay more as a payer? I say I'll pay less and the patient can take it twice a day. Big deal. That's just an example, but that's where that value proposition deck is so important to be able to tell that story and to have the payer decide that, yes, this is valuable to add to formula. John Haas, thank you so much for joining us on the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you very much, Jeff. Appreciate your time. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life. Thank you.